Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. This weekend's message is from Tyler McKenzie. He's the lead pastor here at Northeast. That being said, uh, down to business day, we're in part three. Part three of a sermon series uh, that we've launched that we're going to run through a pretty big chunk of the summer on the book of Acts. Acts. For those of you who are new to the Bible, again, let me reorient you to Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books in the Christian New Testament. And the reason why they are especially important to us is because they're the four authoritative accounts of the life of Jesus. They start with Jesus' birth, and then they give us Jesus' life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection from the dead. And then he rises from the dead with all this power, and he imbues his power on the disciples, and he commissions them to go change the world, build the kingdom. You got this. The Holy Spirit is coming. And then it ends. They end. It's like... It's like getting to this climactic moment. The tomb's empty and Jesus is commissioned. And then it, it, just, it just ends. And if you're like me, when you're reading the Gospels, you're left with this like cliffhanger question. What happens next? Now what? Well, that is the beauty of Acts. This is where Acts picks up. And it tells us exactly what happens next. It tells us what Jesus' disciples do with the power of the Holy Spirit as they go off and build the church. And it's an amazing story. And I believe it's a story for this particular cultural moment that we find ourselves in right now. Because, as you've heard me say before, I think that the church in America has come under a tremendous amount of scrutiny, and rightfully so. There's a lot wrong the church in our country, and a lot that needs to be made right. Sometimes I can be the loudest voice of critique from this stage. And if you've ever heard me do that before or hear me do that again, I want you to know that one, my critique of the church comes from a place of deep love. I'm embedded within it. I've given my life to lead it, okay? So I love the church. But I also want you to know that anytime I critique the church, my reference point is Jesus and Acts. Acts, because, because if there's a golden era of the church that needs to be restored in this cultural moment today, it's that. It's the church we see led by Jesus' best friends by the power of the Spirit. So, so that's the hope of this series. Now, if you guys were here um, uh, you know, uh, in any of the previous weeks, you'll know that we kind of created this diagram. This sort of maps out for you what we're after, all right? We're doing historical work around the ancient church, so there's going to be some history for all you nerds in the room uh, packed in all these sermons, but we're also trying to figure out where that history overlaps with modern issues that ail the church. So for example, in week one, we looked at the history behind the introduction to both Luke and Acts, one story, two volumes, right? But we also answered the question throughout, can I trust the Christian scriptures? Because I believe Acts and Luke 1 are great examples as to why the scriptures are pretty trustworthy. Uh, next, last week, we asked a very, very controversial question. Is diversity Christian? And to answer that, we use Jesus' great commission from Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11 to his disciples. And uh, if, if you didn't catch that, Go back last week, all right? There's something in there that will offend everyone. Now, this week, this week, uh, we're going to look at the rest 
of that great commission of Jesus. We're gonna go back to that passage. We're gonna unpack it because he doesn't just tell them where to, 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 to go. He also tells them how to go. He uses this word witness, if you will. And I would suggest to you that witness is a theme of the book of Acts. What we see in Acts is the witness of the early church. And so we're gonna unpack exactly what that witness looks like. And while we do that, we're gonna answer this question. Why is the church today, why is the church today facing such a credibility crisis? And what might we learn from the early church on how we can heal that again in this cultural moment? All right, before we go anywhere with that though, I'm gonna ask you to stand with me, if you will, stand. Uh, we're gonna read together from Acts, uh, Acts 1, 6 through 9. If you can't stand, that's fine. Just, just put your heart and your mind in a place of surrender and, uh, and receiving from God. Let me read to you, again, the risen Jesus' Acts commission to the disciples. These are his last words. Luke writes, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore the kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. So, Lord, Lord, you can be seated. Thanks be to God for all of his word. Now, we're going to break down that passage here in a second, but I want to make my case first. Um, in the United States of America today, we are experiencing a credibility crisis. In most major institutions that uh, play authoritative roles, but especially in the church, and I think it's deserved. Like, I don't know if you feel this, but for me, if someone asks me, you know, are you a Christian? Like you get in one of those airplane conversations where it's like basic bio stuff. And they're like, so wait, are you a Christian? I don't feel like I can just say yes. And for the record, I am very proud that I'm a Christian, but I always like, I feel like I need to qualify it. Well, what do you mean by Christian? Because you see, if you mean this, well then yes, I'm that. But if you mean this, well, no, I'm not that. But if you mean this, I'm kind of this and kind of that. And people already get tired and just exhausted from talking to me. Like here, here's another one. Sometimes people will, will ask you, you know, um, what do you do for a living? And when folks ask me that, sometimes I like hesitate. I don't know if I wanna tell them that I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor because of some of the preconceived notions and assumptions that will come with it. So I'm like, well, you know, I'm a leader of a nonprofit in the city of Louisville that <laughs> works for the renewal of the city. You know, like that's, that's okay, here's a, here's a really good one. Once people kind of figure out what I do, um, um, they'll be like, oh, so is your church an evangelical one? Which again, hot topic buzzword. I'm, I'm usually like, what do you mean by evangelical? Because if you mean it in the historical and theological sense, well then yes, our church is evangelical. We believe in conversionism, which is transforming lives through born again experiences and lifelong process of following Jesus. We believe in activism, which is expressing the gospel and evangelism and ref, uh, social reform efforts. We believe in biblicism, which is viewing scripture as the high ultimate authority and also crucocentrism, which is elevating Jesus and the cross as the means of salvation and method for life. So if you mean that by evangelical, well then yes, that's quite us, but... That's not usually what they mean when they say evangelical. So if you mean by that like a voting block, 
that sometimes stands for things that aren't Christian at all, well then no, our church isn't left, it isn't right, it isn't moderate either, it's transcendent because we inhabit the kingdom way. I am a fantastic conversation on an airplane, by the way. It's like, I'm gonna put my headphones in now. I'm sorry, I asked, dude. Uh, Now, seriously, this is not an atypical week for me. I want you to know this. Seriously, this past week, I have had six pastoral conversations. Just this past week, six. Two two with uh, what I would call prospective Christians, people who are interested in the faith. Um, One with a brand new Christian. And uh, three with longtime Christians who are deconstructing their faith right now and literally considering leaving Christianity behind. And in all six of those conversations, their concerns or problems or questions boil down to this one thing. Why are Christians the way that they are? Or I believe Mahatma Gandhi said it best when he said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, let me give you just like a few examples on the ground of the sort of issues that I find myself wrestling down with folks. Uh, on the screen right now, you will see a picture of uh, Robbie Zacharias and Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, and over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, these two men led literally some of the most influential and powerful Christian institutions on the face of the planet Earth. Uh, Ravi Zacharias has passed away. Uh, but when he was alive, he was a brilliant defender of the faith, an apologist that traveled the world defending Christianity, answering hard questions, built this massive ministry. I, re- I remember when I was in college, I had some serious doubts that I was struggling through. And I had this long drive to work early in the morning where I would turn the radio on and sometimes Ravi would be lecturing. And I can remember a couple occasions where he addressed literally the question that I was wrestling with that day. Uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. led Liberty University for about a 10 to 15 year period. And uh, the place blew up under his leadership to literally, I think, the largest evangelical university in the United States of America. Just about all of us probably know a Christian that, that went there. I've got friends. I know pastors. There are people on our staff, uh, stakeholders at our church that took classes or got degrees from Liberty. And they would tell you it was formative in their experience coming to know Jesus. And they look back so fondly on their experience there. But all that being said, over the last year, there have been some disturbing, devastating sins come to light in both of these men's past. Abuse, corruption, deception, all. Basically, it ain't PG-13 enough for us to be able to go in detail in this room right now. two more Christian power brokers, two more Christian celebrities, the faces of these evangelical institutions 
falling flat on their face and, and failing morally in the public square again. I'm gonna tell you what, when I talk to folks considering Christianity, I gotta answer those questions. What about this? What about that? Okay, if, if they're failing at the top, they must be failing at the bottom. What's going on at my church or your church? Uh, one of my friends said, Tyler, it's not even the fact that sometimes people fail. Leaders fail, especially folks who get power. You know, that can be intoxicating. What, what bothers me were the, the board of directors or the leadership teams around these folks that were complicit, that knew what was going on for years, but didn't pull the curtains back because the ministry was just too important to do that. As if God couldn't get ministry done. Without corrupt leadership. Now, these are examples on a national scale. We've all heard some of those before, seen them on the front page. But I'm gonna tell you what, for many of us, when it comes to like a, a relational touch point with some of our friends, we do more harm to the witness of Christ than those on a national scale, if we're not careful. And it can be in, in seemingly meaningless ways. Okay, so I saw this it was on Instagram a couple, couple weeks ago, shared by uh, a sister in Christ who I hold, hold in high regard. Uh, she shared, it's like a little meme, said, uh, Noah was a conspiracy theorist until it started to rain. Now, uh, the point of a post like that is to be like punchy, to grab your attention, look kind of funny, shareable for people who identify uh, with, uh, you know, the sentiment of it. But like conspiracy theories aside, I think posts like that are harmful because it's just another example of us allowing ourselves to politicize our faith. Co-opting scripture in order to prop up one of our political beliefs. That does damage to the kingdom and the gospel, y'all. What I wanted to ask was, okay, so what conspiracy theory exactly would you equate on the level of credibility with a direct promise from the mouth of God to Noah? Please tell me. Or, or what conspiracy theorist or news anchor or politician, whoever you heard it from, would you equate on the level of credibility with Noah himself? The one who Genesis chapter six says was righteous and blameless in his generation. Literally the reason why he got on the ark because he was the holiest man alive. So it's seemingly harmless, but for the outside eye looking in, they're saying, well, there it goes. There's another Christian just allowing their right-leaning or their left-leaning politics to define their Jesus rather than Jesus defining their politics. Look, it can be a number of things, y'all. Character failures, deception, the politicization of faith, but, but all these degrade our witness slowly but surely over time until we have no real reputation to stand on. Now, I want you to compare that though. Compare that to the witness of the early church. Acts chapter two, verse 46. This is, this is how they were known in their communities. It says they worshiped together at the temple each day. Um, they met in homes for the Lord's supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God, check this out, and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Apparently people liked them. We should try that. They liked it, okay. And then each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So they had the goodwill of people and they were constantly adding people to their community. Incredible. Does that describe us, American church? 
I'll tell you on the growth end of the spectrum, it, it doesn't, because many of you guys have seen the statistics. I've shared them with y'all before. They are quite alarming. Um, Gallup just came out with another, uh, another uh, uh, research poll that, uh, that showed that in 2020, 47% of U.S. adults, just 47% belong to a faith community. That's down from 50% in 2018, 70% in 1999. That's a sharp decline. Um, this is the first time in their eight decades of collecting this data that it's dropped below 50. And as you guys probably know, younger people are far more likely to claim no religious preference than those who are older. For those interested, this is a picture of the trend line. You can see it's just down and to the right. Now, uh, one thing that is clear, by the way, about the church in Acts is that they were not liked by everyone. They were the goal. In fact, there were people who really disliked the church, who were out for them, who persecuted them. And we'll see that here, here briefly. But they had a magnetic quality about them. That much is clear. But you gotta understand, before Pentecost, you could fit all the Christians in a room. And then within weeks, there were 3,000. Months, there were over 10,000. Within about four or five generations, they'd become the majority religion of the Roman Empire. Emperor Constantine was having dreams about crosses and his mom, Helen, was traveling around the Mediterranean Rim, planting holy sites and acquiring relics. Quite the turn, uh, uh, change of circumstances for the church, right? How'd they get there? Well, again, I believe it boils down to this one word, witness. They bore witness for Jesus. Acts chapter one, verse eight, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. What does witness mean? Well, here's a fact sheet on the word witness for the nerds out there. Uh, witness comes from the Greek word martis. It literally means something like uh, one who affirms or testifies to anything. This and six related terms are used 39 times in Acts. Uh, to help you understand, it's used often in legal contexts. Think of like calling a witness to the stand. And it's used eventually for those who witness at the cost of their life, martyrs. And I would suggest to you today that Acts is really just the story of the witness of the church. This is the theme. Jesus commissions them at the beginning to bear witness. The rest of the book tells us what that witness looks like. So if we want to witness like the early church, we look at who they were in Acts. Now, who were they? Um, well, uh, Rodney Stark, he currently holds the Distinguished Chair of Social Sciences at Baylor University. Uh, actually, uh, he wrote a book several decades ago called The Rise of Christianity. I'm going to read to you the subtitle here because it actually gets at what the book's about. Um, it's called The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in Just a Few Centuries. Or basically, in layman's terms, how'd Christianity blow up? That's, that's what he tells us, right? Now, what I love about Stark, though, is that when he wrote this and did his research, he wasn't a Christian. Okay. So he said, I'm going, let's just pretend, because this is what he believed, let's pretend like there was no Holy Spirit engine underneath it. Let's pretend like there was no power in the proclamation of the risen Jesus. Let's pretend like God wasn't behind it or anything. Let's just look at purely social scientific principles in order to determine what made the early church's witness so powerful. And in doing that and investigating all the biblical and extra biblical data available, he came to these seven principles, my summary here, devotes a chapter to him each. 
He says, one, they faced death and persecution with courage. Two, they defied class hierarchy. Three, they practiced radical compassion. Four, they elevated the status of women. Five, they successfully converted their fellow Jews. Six, they successfully infiltrated cities. And seventh, they built a community of deep and exclusive devotion. That was the key. And believe it or not, by the way, those seven principles map extremely well on the witness of the church in Acts. So with the rest of our time here briefly, what I wanna do is I wanna give you a little history on each one of those to show you how it happened in Acts. And then I wanna ask ourselves an important question. Is our witness like theirs? Does our witness mirror theirs? Because if it doesn't, then we need to bring ourselves in alignment, right? Okay, so first, uh, Stark says, uh, first, they faced death and persecution with courage. Death and persecution with courage. Here's just, this is not an exhaustive list, but here's just a brief list of the many ways that the original disciples um, were persecuted. You see immediately after the church is born, Peter and John are imprisoned. In Acts 5, all the apostles are imprisoned and beaten. Acts 7, uh, Stephen is martyred. That's the first Christian martyr. Acts 8, 1 through 3, we see Saul kick off his persecution. Acts 9, Saul gets converted, and then immediately upon his conversion, the Jews try to assassinate him. In fact, uh, it's interesting. You guys remember the story? They have to like sneak him out of the city. Um, Acts 12, James is killed and Peter's almost killed as well. He like barely escapes. And then Acts 13 through 28, the rest of the book just basically details Paul's church planning adventures where he is continually persecuted and suffers. Again, this is not even an exhaustive list. Now, I would suggest to you that the persecution of the early church is actually a theme of Acts. And the reason why some of us never thought about it before is because it happens so often, it just becomes background noise. Like if one of your friends came up to you and they're like, hey, it's crazy yesterday. I was talking about Jesus and I got beaten and thrown into prison. You'd be like, wait, what? <laughs> That's insane. I'm sorry. Tell me more, right? But that sort of stuff happens so often in Acts, we just stop noticing it. One of my favorite examples is in Acts chapter five, verse 40. Shows you how the, the church, the early church postured themselves. Um, so the disciples have blown Christianity up They've done it in Jerusalem. The early church's leaders don't, or excuse me, the, the temple establishment's leaders don't like it. So they throw the apostles in jail. And they're about to kill them, but then they decide not to, thanks to this guy named Gamaliel, long story. So they called in the apostles and they had them flogged. They got flogged, ow. And then they ordered them as a threat to never again speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, after getting beaten and threatened, what does it say the apostles do? It says the apostles left the council. What's that word? Rejoicing. They're like, <laughs> we got beat up for Jesus, man. What up? Like, it's just, it's weird, right? I don't even know. But they're rejoicing that God has counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And then every day, what do they do next? Every day in the temple and from house to house, like knocking on doors, they continue to do what they told them not to do. Love that. Acts chapter seven, love this example too. Uh, Stephen is martyred, he's stoned to death. Obviously don't like that, but I love his witness even unto death. It says, uh, then they dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Let me introduce you to the future apostle Paul. He's the one who incites this stoning. He's like holding the coats. Go ahead, throw the rocks. I'll hold your coats. While they were stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Sound familiar? Who else prayed that when they died? Jesus. Then he knelt down and cried out, uh, cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this, uh, this sin against them. Sound familiar? 
Who else prayed that when he died? Jesus. And when he had said this, Stephen died, and Saul approved of their killing, uh, killing him. Now, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These are the words of Jesus. And these are the words of Stephen. And what I find so fascinating is that God actually answers that prayer, doesn't he? Because fast forward one chapter later and we see Saul, the one who incites the thing and holds the coats and approves of it, Saul finds the forgiveness of Jesus and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And it shows us all that for some of us, it's not the way that we live that will bear great witness, but it's the way that we die that will bear great witness to the world. Look at Stephen, what is he remembered for? Now, um, the next slide here, just to connect the word with martyr for you. Uh, this is why the Greek word martis for witness is eventually used for the martyrs of the faith. Can you hear it in the word martis? Our English word is a transliteration of the Greek word, literally. Why? Because witnessing may end in martyrdom. Often it did. 11 of the 12 first disciples were martyred for Jesus. Now, all that history having been said, I have a question for you, and this is where we get practical here. Is that us, though? Are we able, in the face of cultural pressure and cultural scorn, I won't even call it persecution, by the way, because calling what we face today persecution is an insult to the apostles and to Christians around the world. So are we able to face the mild cultural pressure and scorn that we face with the same sort of courage that they had? Well, I would suggest to you that some folks do. But for many of us, we can't even handle cancel culture. I'll promise you this, okay? Um, if you follow the whole Jesus, you will be canceled eventually by the left and the right. That's a promise. Just, just pre prepare your heart for it. Now, here's the problem though. Most of us don't like being canceled, right? We don't wanna be. Um, and so uh, we allow fear to inform our decisions. And anytime we allow fear to inform our decisions, extreme responses come from that. And so what I see is a lot of people sacrificing biblical orthodoxy and their fellowship of Jesus in order to fit in to whatever tribe on the left or the right that they wanna fit into. So you're telling me you can't face down cancel culture, but you'd be willing to face down a beating or jail time we got to up the ante, y'all. Okay, can we just talk about cancel culture for a sec? Let's get to all get on the same page. Quick cancel culture rant, okay? Just so you know, first, cancel culture as a phenomenon is not new. We like to think it's new because all of a sudden we're on the receiving end rather than the giving end of it, but it's not new. In fact, I would suggest to you that long before the activists left started deploying this on the evangelical right, Christians mastered the art of cancel culture. Catholics for centuries have done this thing called excommunication. The pilgrim Puritans who came to the United States first literally would kick the heretics out of their community. How do you think Rhode Island got started? No head nods? Google it later. Like this, this is how Rhode Island got started. The evangelicals still do it today. Uh, did you know that Jerry Falwell Sr., leader of the moral majority, actually called for, uh, he actually called for Christians everywhere to cancel Teletubbies. This is back in the 90s. Because Tinky Winky was covertly gay. It's the purple one for those of you who are, who are wondering, okay? <laughs> 
Don't even get me started on Starbucks holiday cups, all right? It's just like, whoo, we're gonna trigger somebody here today. Now, now, you see, it's not new, y'all. And the reason why I think as a cultural phenomenon it feels new though is because the power dynamics have shifted and now many of us are on the receiving end of it, right? Look, when you're the bullet, cancel culture is just speaking the truth. But all of a sudden when you're the target, well, it's not fair. You see? Now I think as Christians, we should admit that oftentimes cancel culture is just accountability. As a people of justice, this is what we are, y'all, we should, we should say, I mean, sometimes criminals need to get a just punishment for what they deserve, for the safety of our communities, for the victims and the abusers. We should be about justice. Now, we should be about just punishment as well, not cruel and unusual punishment as the cancel culture mob oftentimes calls for. We should be a people of justice that pushes back both ways. But justice is not a bad thing. It's a good thing for us. And we need to acknowledge, Christians, that if we're following Jesus right, then we eventually we'll be canceled. This is a guaranteed part of your future. And in those moments, you can know that you are living in the blessedness of Jesus. Because what does Jesus say? Luke chapter 6, verse 23, he says, blessed are you. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. And woe to you when all men speak well of you for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. So this, this is my encouragement to us. In the face of mild cultural pressure, let's have a little backbone and let's show the same courage and rejoicing that we see in the early church. I'm telling you, it would actually improve our witness. Next, two, three, and four. We gotta speed up, I know. It's the story of my life. Two, three, and four, they defied class hierarchy, practiced radical compassion, and uh, they uh, elevated the status of women. You can see the, the defiance of class hierarchy and the practice of radical compassion in Acts chapter four here. Fascinating little passage. All the believers were united in heart and mind. They felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. Apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of Jesus and God's blessing was upon them. And don't miss this. It says there were no needy people among them in their community. No needy people. That's incredible. Man, I wish that we could build a church where we could say there's no needy people among us. Now, now for the record, this is a unique economic model. It is not capitalism. The Bible does not endorse capitalism. It wasn't around back then. It's not socialism either. The Bible does not endorse socialism. It was not around back then. This is what one theologian calls communalism. The voluntary self-sacrifice of our God-given possessions so that we can love neighbor, and love our brother and sisters in Christ as they deserve. Next, they also elevated the status of women. Here's several examples of them, seven different times. I mean, I wish, I wish we had the time to talk through each one of these. Screenshot it if you want to look, up, uh, look at them later. But here's the real practical question we need to get at. This is the question we got to ask y'all. Are we building this sort of community? Are we building the communities that we should known for a commitment to compassionate love? Now, some churches do well at that. I would like to think that this is a strength for the Loveville Church, I would. But I think at large, the American church will not change and become that sort of radical, externally focused, others-centered, compassionate community until we reorient our understanding of the church as something not that we consume, but that we participate in. See, most of us go to consumer church. 
Most of us see church as a place that we are supposed to consume from. What's consumer church, Tyler? Well, I've made a list of of some of the things that consumer church does. First, from consumer church, we want an uplifting, non-controversial, brief self-help, brief, Tyler, brief self-help TED Talk rather than the apostles' teachings. Um, We also want music that I like, forgetting the fact that we are not the object of worship. Um, Help finding my calling rather than help surrendering to Jesus. Advice developing a personal relationship with God at the exclusion of our corporate relationship with one another. A ministry menu that meets my current needs, which by the way will constantly be changing. And expectations and options that fit my busy schedule because I'm very, very busy. And last, no hard feelings, pastor. No hard feelings when I get bored, offended, or just find somewhere better and leave. Usually somewhere around two to five years. Now look, no wonder so many churches are resistible rather than irresistible, right? Because what makes the church any different than any other organization that we shop from or that we relate to day in and day out? Nothing. Five and six, we see the early church's witness um, as they successfully convert their fellow Jews or folks who are culturally like them. And we see the church's witness when they successfully infiltrated cities. Um, so these are Bible studies. Both of them are Bible studies in, on their own. It's, it's pretty fascinating. If you want to see the evangelism uh, or evangelization of, of the Jews, you look at the first seven chapters in Acts. Because what we see is we see these Jewish uh, men and women preaching about a Jewish Messiah in Jerusalem at the t- and the temple, and it just it explodes, right? It, it explodes. Uh, go to the, to the previous slide there, number five, because um, you can see some of the examples here. In Acts chapter two, yeah, you see there are about 3,000 of them that are converted on the first day, Pentecost. Then in Acts chapter four, you see the number grows to 5,000 uh, men, which means it's probably double that total. And then in Acts chapter five, it says the wave just kept going. More and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. Again, this is happening in Jerusalem, in the temple. They were good at communicating the message of Jesus to their neighbors. They also infiltrated the cities. Um, You can give Paul credit for this. He targeted cities. He believed cities were hubs of culture and the gospel should be taken there. I've uh, taken a snapshot here uh, here for you of uh, of how... uh, of how Paul made his way in Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire at the time, probably one of the top four most important cities. And uh, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible how Paul plants these little churches and they grow like a virus. Now, more Bible study stuff to be said on that, but let's get to the practical part. Question for you. Is this true of us? Like the early church, are we telling our neighbors, our friends, and our families about Jesus? Like with actual words, not just loving them to Jesus, which is a good thing, but actually telling them about Jesus as well. Quick uh, pop quiz for you, all right? This is how you can test yourself. Just a few, few questions. When's the last time you invited someone to church? When's the last time you shared how Jesus has changed your life? When's the last time you encouraged a lost or a hurting friend to turn to God? Or when's the last time you've been a part of a baptism for someone? May not be the one Duncan, but part, part of that growth process there. All four of these would be indicative of your willingness to have spiritual conversations about Jesus. 
And for some of us, we may not grade out very well on the quiz, right? Now, if that's you, I get why. There's a certain amount of shame associated with Christianity right now. Or, or, even, or even for some people, it's like uncertainty. Like, what do I say, Tyler? Like, I don't know how to talk. Like, I, I, I'm just kind of, do I have to answer hard questions? Like, so if that's you, that's you. Let me give you a challenge and an encouragement, okay? Your challenge is this. You have to talk about Jesus, if he's really changed your heart like the way that you say he has, you should want to talk about Jesus. So this is like not optional. This, this is a Christian requirement for us all. We have to talk about Jesus. That's the challenge. But here's the encouragement. All you have to do is talk about Jesus. That's it. Like when they're drilling you with the hard stuff, like what about this celebrity and they did this and there's corruption? You can say, yeah, I don't like it either. And let me show you why Jesus is so much different than that. Or like when people are hitting you with those, those really like hard brain buster questions, you know, what about Noah? Did you get the dinosaurs on the ark? You know, and evolution, oh yeah, Jonah and the whale, oh, hell, sex, to answer all the questions. You don't, have to be, you don't have to be able to answer all those. You don't have to be an expert in all those. You can say, I, it's not my expertise. Uh, we can try to figure out some answers together, but here's what I will tell you. I'll tell you that Jesus changed my life and here's how. I'll tell you my story. Let me tell you about what my church does for the community. Let me tell you why Jesus is my reason. It is literally that simple. Basically what I'm saying is that all beliefs are not created equal. There are some beliefs that are more essential and important than the rest. And the one that is most central of them all is Jesus. Jesus died and risen. Jesus, our savior and Lord Jesus. Just point to him. Just point to him. I think what you'll find is that his name and his story, along with yours, has real power change the human heart. Which brings us to our last point, number seven. Last, they built a community of deep and exclusive devotion. I wanted to end with this because I wanted to end by reading to you Acts 2, 42 through 47, passage that illustrates this and a passage that every time I read it, I think to myself, gosh, I would love to be a part of a community like this. I want this church to be a, be a community like this. Let, let me read it to you. Just imagine being a part of this. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to meal sharing, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their properties and possessions and shared the money with those in need. And they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now, could you imagine, could you imagine being in a community like that? What a blessing that would be. You know, when I open up my Bible to Acts chapter two and I read that passage, I think to myself, it makes sense. It makes sense that this group of people were able to sell their belief that their leader rose from the dead. It makes sense. Because if your leader rises from the dead, ordinary is no longer an option, only extraordinary will do. And this was an extraordinary community. It makes sense. But I'll tell you what wouldn't make sense. What would make sense is if we opened our Bibles to Acts chapter two and we were to read this. All the believers uh, gathered together uh, in a building. 
an air-conditioned building for an, for, for an hour, once or twice a month. And the really, really committed ones would sometimes raise their hand in worship. And the really, really committed ones would give like 5%. And they stopped cussing too. Now look, if, if I opened my Bible to Acts chapter two and I read that, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, you would do the same thing. I wouldn't be a Christian. I wouldn't be a Christian. Because I would say, look, your guy, your guy didn't really rise from the dead because if he rose from the dead, ordinary would no longer be an option for you. Only extraordinary would do. And yet, man, sometimes I read this book and then I look in the mirror or I read in this book and I pray over our church and I think, something doesn't line up. My life doesn't line up with this. This church has still got a long way to go to get to this. And then in my self-defensive moments, I'm like, well, yeah, but, but you know, at least we're better than that. I start comparing us or me, but we're better than that pastor. We're better than that church. At least we're, we're, we're not on the front page of the news like that guy, right? But that's not the standard that God called us to, right? He didn't call us to compare ourselves to anything else other than this right here. What would happen if we just threw ourselves into this? I tell you what would happen. Ordinary would no longer be an option for us. Only extraordinary would do. We would start living normal spirituality. We don't even know what normal feels like yet, right? We would start living normal spirituality outright and people would begin to see Jesus in us. And that's our role after all, right? To bear witness to him. We are the body of Christ. He has no other hands than ours, no other feet than ours, no other mouth, no other face, no other love than the love that we give. We are his body, his physical presence in the world today. You and I are as close as people will get to Jesus this side of heaven. So let's embrace that responsibility with humility. Let's embrace that responsibility with joy. Let's embrace that responsibility with courage. I'll close with this prayer of St. Patrick and then we're gonna partake of communion together to end our time together. Patrick prays, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me. Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth, of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. In Jesus' name, amen.